0: Charles Mitchell is president and CEO of the Commonwealth Foundation for Public Policy Alternatives, a native from Delaware County. Charles and I met when he was on trial at Bucknell University for exercising his First Amendment rights. Today, he now leads one of the nation's premier free market think tanks. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I'm in downtown Harrisburg at the offices of the Commonwealth Foundation with uh, president and CEO Charles Mitchell. Charles, uh, welcome to Brews and Views. Hey, thanks for having me, joining quite an august
1: group. There must have been a cancellation today.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you know, as a leader of a prominent uh, uh, think tank in Harrisburg, uh, but someone who's not in Harrisburg a whole lot because you spend a lot of time, I don't know, 25, 30, 35,000 miles on your car as you uh, traverse the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I thought it'd be a good uh, opportunity for folks to get to know you who uh, may spend a lot of time in Harrisburg, but uh, don't see you here in the capital city. Well, happy to do it. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, let's start uh, with uh, where you grew up, and then I want to talk about some of the things you're passionate about. And I know you've got some exciting things happening on the the personal front that uh, really comes out of, I think, the things that you're quite passionate about. But uh, you're a Delco guy, Delaware County. Uh, You have your your Philly sayings, I know, every once in a while, like uh, you can't pronounce water uh, correctly or things like that. But uh, (laughs) tell me about uh, growing up in Delaware County, Charles.
1: Growing up in Delaware County is a great thing. Uh, we have the stuff we drink called water. Um, <laughs> you can use water to make coffee. Um, you usually drink coffee when you're talking to your boss. Um, but uh, yeah, my, um, my, my family is uh, kind of a, a normal Philadelphia family in certain respect. All four of my grandparents uh, lived in the city of Philadelphia and they gradually, you know, migrated as a lot of people did. Uh, In the post-war period, maybe I guess maybe now you know today's day and age you got to define what you mean by the post-war period. But I mean uh, post World War II. Uh, So you know, eventually my my four grandparents and my two parents migrated from uh, Philadelphia to Delaware County. Uh, For those you know uh, in other areas of the state, basically they moved uh, southwest. You can still go south and still be of Philadelphia and still be in Pennsylvania, depending where you're going. And uh, they moved really just outside the city limits to uh, the this, this sort of inner ring suburbs. And then uh, after I was born, my parents moved further west, almost to the Chester County line. So uh, some people have been known to say that I grew up in posh Delco.
0: <laughs> so and, and what did your dad do? What was uh, his employment? Uh, what put uh, food on your table?
1: Yeah, my, um, my whole family on the Mitchell side is railroaders. They uh, they all worked for, uh, at, in the old days the Pensil- uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad. Now, uh, my father still works uh, t- to this day for SEPTA, as does my brother. So uh, the reality is like I- I'm the I'm the weirdo. You know what I mean <laughs> in the family. Uh, we're we're supposed to, if your name Mitchell and you're a guy, you know you're kind of supposed to be on the railroad. Uh, you know that's not how it ended up for me, as as you know. Uh, but that's, uh, that's, that's been what a lot of guys in my family have done for, uh, for generations, and, uh, you know, some are, are still doing today.
0: Yeah, were your parents politically active at all? Is that where you got to your interest in, in politics, or uh, did you talk politics at the dinner table at all?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, again, it's interesting. People have stereotypes. You know, people in other parts of the state find out that, in, you know, in, in their lexicon that I'm from Philadelphia, and that brings to mind a certain— image you know the reality is uh I grew up in kind of a gun toting family um, my uh, my father uh, taught me to shoot starting at the age of six uh, and you know my brother likewise and uh before you know sometimes parents make decisions for kids when they're you know too young to make decisions you know like baptism or things like that uh and, and my parents did that but my, uh, my father also signed us up as life members of the NRA. So, <laughs> you know, guns were, uh, guns were a big deal for us. It was, it was an important pastime, you know, in our family. And uh, my father was always very, very careful about safety. That was a huge, huge deal for us. But uh, I would say, you know, in terms of politics, the preeminent, in light of all that, preeminent issue that I remember, you know, kitchen table discussion about was the Second Amendment. Um, and uh, And that was something that we were very much educated about um, and in the you know early in my life, I would say to the de- degree that I had political views, I would say they were you know very ill informed and sort of embryonic. But to the degree that I had them, they extended from basically what my views were on the Second Amendment, which was the government needs to stay away from. My stuff and <laughs> my money, and you know, it's sort of logically extended from that principle of like I want the government to um, to stay away from my guns, which you know I don't think is the political identity that first comes to a lot of people's minds from like Western Pennsylvania when they hear from Philadelphia that I'm from Philadelphia. But but it's a fact, and that was that was one of the key things we discussed in my uh, my household. Now my my grandparents, uh, especially on the Mitchell side, were a very uh, very very important. I mean, sort of singular figures in a way in my life as I was growing up. Uh, my given name is Charles Francis Mitchell III. So you can do the math, right? And my, my grandfather was our namesake. Um, my grandfather was a union official in Philadelphia. A lot of people know that the Commonwealth Foundation has some opinions on unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather was a Republican, uh, and he was, he was very vocal and, you know, influenced me. My grandmother uh, was, you know, one of the— legions of ladies that in times gone by, the Delaware County Republican Party relied upon to reliably, you know, pull the lever (laughs) and vote straight ticket. And that's the way she voted every single time. So, you know, we talked about those things, but not as like a political family in the sense that some of the people that you and I work with, you know, in the legislature or whatever would understand it. We were just kind of normal people. And to the degree we really talked about anything, it was it was. It was really the second. Well,
0: moment. so I, I suspect that uh, what really shaped it was going to that conservative bastion uh, of Bucknell University, uh, where you end, How did you end up at, at Bucknell? And uh, I know this is where our stories intersect uh, eventually yeah. here. But uh, what what took you to Bucknell? And uh, then let's talk about your time there. And uh, well, uh, that was almost cut short, and we'll get to that story. But how did you end up at Bucknell?
1: Yeah, i I've, I've made a lot of. Um, fairly boneheaded decisions over the course of my life. You have to understand, uh, and I'm not saying Bucknell was one of them, but the decision-making process was really not (laughs) terribly intelligent. Um, You know, when you grew up where I did, uh, you refer to the rest of the state as upstate, which is funny because nobody who lives there calls it that, right? But that's kind of a thing. So uh, when, uh, when we were kids, obviously, like I said, the Second Amendment was a big deal, and we would go hunting in what we called upstate. Now, you would know it as Schuylkill County. Oh, <laughs> uh, isn't its not. I mean, it's kind of up, but it doesn't really make a whole lot. Up of sense. from where you are, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's what—it's it's a Relative, thing, though. It's a yeah, thing, though. Okay. Like your listeners in in the South East will know. Like they, they still, I he's still here. You know, yeah, upstate. Like, whatever. Um, so we would go upstate, and my first college idea was uh, we were gallivanting around uh, Schuylkill County, and I really loved it up there. I, I enjoyed being up there, uh, and uh, we passed by Penn State Schuylkill. And I said, Dad, I want to go to college there. Now, look, you know, I um, I had, you know, I wasn't a straight-A student, but I had good grades. You know, I ended up graduating sixth in my class at Garnet Valley High School, public school in Delco. So, uh, you know, my father was like, no, get out of here. You're not <laughs> going – and my father uh, – did not say that with any contempt. He was the first in his family to go to college. He went to uh, Penn State, Delco, and then he went to University Park for the last two years and was very proud of that achievement. It is is a big achievement, you know, in a family when that happens. But my father's view was I should, you know, most fathers and mothers want their kids to do better than them. You know what I mean? So, like, that was his view. So, anyway, my first pitch was uh, Penn State, school, that didn't work out. Uh, and eventually, uh, I, I still wanted to go to college, quote-unquote, upstate, you know, as we called it back then. Uh, then, uh, I know this will, like, shock any guy listening, but then there's a girl who enters the story. And really just the the plain straightforward way to say it is Bucknell became my top choice of the, quote-unquote, upstate schools that I was considering because there was a girl there. Uh, and that's uh, that's how I ended up there. And, and as uh, I think you're alluding to, Matt, um, you know, there were some interesting things that happened once I got there.
0: Yeah, so uh, talk about those things, and I think that this is where uh, some more of your political development uh, occurred, and and, uh, uh, you're finding out real quick uh, about uh, First Amendment rights, uh, freedom of speech. Um, I know you got involved with a conservative organization on campus uh, that uh, led to uh, um, you being put on trial Uh, So, so talk about that experience, and then uh, we can talk about where our paths intersected, and we'll get to uh, what you're doing at Commonwealth Foundation. Yeah.
1: Um, So, as you know, you know, my first sort of issue in life was the Second Amendment. Um, I became an expert on the First Amendment accidentally. Um, You know, I I I began to be a little bit more politically conscious in high school. I would still say I was very ill-informed. Um, But, you know, I began to have views. I wrote for the uh, high school newspaper. And uh, I was a freshman at Bucknell, uh, you know, due to my receding hairline and other things. People often think I'm older than I am. But I was a freshman at Bucknell on 9-11. And, uh, you know, a lot of people did much more noble things after 9-11. You know, I know I have friends who have signed up for the armed forces and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but if you can remember back then, patriotism was kind of in the air, and you just—a lot of us felt like we just wanted to do something, yeah. right? So for me, what that was was I got an email—and this is not noble. It just was. It just is what it is, right? It's kind of like, you know, the reason I went to Bucknell wasn't particularly <laughs> noble, but, you know, God uses even broken vessels, I think. Uh, I got an email about a uh, meeting of the Conservatives Club. It was a new Conservatives Club. And, you know, because of my father and my grandfather primarily, I, I had some, you know, uh, identity, so to speak, with that term. I wouldn't say that I truly knew what it meant from a philosophical perspective or anything like that. But for some reason, I just thought, oh, I'm interested in that. So long story short, I showed up at the meeting. Um, I didn't realize there was some business to be transacted at the meeting. Um, we needed to approve a constitution, which, you know, I, I began to figure out that conservatives actually care about things like constitutions, right? Uh, and we had to elect officers. Well, the problem was there were only six people at that, <laughs> you know, conservative bastion who wanted to be in this conservatives club. And there were five officers in the Constitution. And there was one lady there uh, who said from the very outset, like, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not doing anything. So that meant the five of us all had to do something. And sort of the last one standing was the editor of the newspaper, which, of course, didn't exist. It was a brand-new club. But the newspaper was called The Counterweight. We were very subtle in terms of what we were doing, you know. <laughs> uh, and they needed somebody to do it, so, you know, I said I would do it. And, Matt, I'll tell you, you know, uh, you know, you and I both do a little bit of writing, and I think we know what good writing is and what bad writing is. Uh, I would say all the issues of that newspaper that first year would qualify as bad. Um, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. It was, you know, whatever. Um, but what made things interesting was the next year, my sophomore year, Uh, we became aware that Bucknell had something that has, you know, become since nationally famous at many colleges and universities called a speech code where certain speech is just disallowed, banned, and anybody who says certain things that offend people, you know, in all these different ways is branded a harasser and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which, needless to say, has, you know, implications for the rest of your life. And our view as students was that's outrageous, right? If somebody we're not talking about harassment, you know, we're not talking about death threats, but we're talking about, like, saying something stupid, something you shouldn't say. Um, Our argument was, if somebody does that, there's a way to handle it. The way to handle it is not some dean to come in and, you know, re-educate them, right? The way to handle it is for friends or colleagues or fellow students to say, dude, you sound like a moron, like, you don't say that, you don't talk like that, you don't, whatever. Let us handle it, right? That was our whole argument. It was let us handle it. Let us be adults. And, and Matt, you know, sophomores are sophomoric, right? So when, when that became, you know, on my radar and we, ded- we decided we were going to dedicate the first issue of sophomore year of the counterweight to it, I thought we were going to be heroes. I thought everybody in the campus was <laughs> going to think we were geniuses, that this was common sense, you know, it's the values of the First Amendment, blah, 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 blah. And I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, the day or so that our newspaper came out. Uh, a senior administrator called a meeting to discuss our newspaper with like 40 aggrieved students who were basically incited by this dean.
0: You didn't have safe spaces at this time for them? They weren't invented yet. Yeah, they okay. weren't invented yet. I think this was like- So this was the, the beginning know. of a safe space, okay. Yeah,
1: and and I'm telling you, like we were so clueless. My Two of my friends and I, we heard about this and we're like, well, how could these, wh- what, what did we do? You know what I mean? Like why are these people so upset? <laughs> And now with everything that's going on in our culture, like it's just laughable, right? right, right. We all get this now, but we didn't get it. And so we we, like innocently showed up at this meeting. And because everybody had been ignoring this newspaper for the last year, you know, you say, you know, nobody in Harrisburg knows who I am. Well, I'll tell you, nobody at Bucknell knew who I was. (laughs) And I spent all my time there because nobody's reading stinking newspaper. So we sat there and we listened to this whole meeting. And so they, you attend
0: this yeah. with with forty other yeah, people yeah. that are yeah. really upset oh, yeah. at, at what the articles, and they, are, yeah.
1: and they didn't know who we were yet because okay. they, you yeah. know, they, never, they didn't pay attention to us, and they until the very you know like an hour in or something we're just listening, and they finally asked who we were, and why we were there, you know, because everybody went around, it was they were sitting in a circle, you know, it was that whole thing, and they got around to me and I just you know I'm, I'm Matt you are aware I'm a fairly you know direct person I said. I'm Charles Mitchell. I'm the editor of The Counterweight, and I, I came to this meeting to find out why, uh, why you all were, were so upset uh, about our newspaper. And, you, you know, it's one of those moments where you just kind of feel the air go out of the balloon, you know, and they were all just like. <gasps>
0: the jukebox goes. Yeah. And, yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. And so the moment that I'll never forget was the dean who incited this whole thing. He was in the middle of the circle, right? And this was our whole argument, right? It's like, let students figure this stuff out for themselves. If you're offended, you know? But he was running this whole thing, and he stood up, and he looked at me, and he said, well, Charles, now that you've heard how you've hurt all these people, if you had it to do over again, would you publish that newspaper? And I thought about it. I swallowed hard. I knew what my answer was, uh, and I knew I wasn't going to like it. And my answer was, listen, I, of course, never meant to to offend or hurt anybody, but I believe in the freedom of speech, and yes, I would publish it again, something to that effect. Well, he didn't expect that answer, and he sort of just gaped, you know, his eyes got big, you know, or whatever, and he said, well, all right, if that's, you know, the way you feel about it, you and your friends need to leave this meeting. And, you know, Matt, like, I'm, I'm a direct person. I, you know, I'm from Delco, you know what I mean? But, like, I'm not, a, I'm not a lawbreaker, you know what I mean? So I was going to obey him. But I was just so shocked that I just kind of looked at him for a minute and didn't move. And he said, no, no, like, you guys don't get it. You leave now or I'm going to call public safety which is the cops. And we were just stunned. But we left and uh, we, uh, you know, this is the other thing I'll never forget. We sat under a tree. And we wrote down what had happened. And we resolved that we were not going to let it end there because this was wrong. And this is not the way a university, and frankly, it's not the way a free society should run. I hadn't really thought all that through then. (laughs) But we just knew this was wrong, Uh right? And we got some good advice uh, uh, from some outside organizations who cared about us, one of them being the Commonwealth Foundation, that we needed to tell our story beyond the campus. And we did. Uh, It was ultimately, it began in the Sunbury Daily Item um, and it spread from there all the way to the cover of the New York Times Magazine. Um, In the middle of that, as you alluded to earlier, uh, that same dean actually pressed charges against me in the campus court. Which was fun because the judge in the trial was the associate dean who reported to him. No problem, <laughs> you know. Uh, I was acquitted, you know. But the way that thing that's, worked—that's
0: almost like people uh, electing judges and then getting uh, favorable rulings. Uh, it, well, it that was, doesn't happen.
1: It was really good preparation <laughs> for my life today. Uh, but uh, you know, but yeah, I was, uh, you know, when when they put you on trial in these campus courts, a lot of people don't know this, right? It's not like a normal proceeding, right? You can't have a lawyer first of all, and it's not you know, you're innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It's preponderance of the evidence, right? And
0: and, and the charges were what? What were they – What? why are they putting you on trial? I mean, what uh, law, quote-unquote law or code that had you violated there that the school had erected?
1: Yeah, well, this is really going to date me. Uh, the long and the short of it is there was a thing back then – that, you know, in some ways is analogous to Twitter today, AOL Instant Messenger, right? It was kind of the thing <laughs> at that time for, you know, people that age. And I had a screen name, we called it, you know, like a Twitter handle, that made fun of this dean because of our, you know, because of the <laughs> aforementioned disagreements that we had. And again, like, you know, sophomores are sophomores, yeah, right, right? right. So, like, I don't, I'm not, like, I'm not saying that was a genius political strategy. It just, you know, it's what a college student did. Um, Uh, Your
0: political career is ruined just because of your AOL. But uh, but his – well,
1: thankfully, I've sworn off a political career. (laughs) We can talk about that if you want. Uh, But anyway, the dean's – specifically, his charge was that I was trying to steal his identity. So, like, imagine (laughs) if somebody had a satirical screen name, you know, making fun of the president of the United States or whoever, right? And then the argument was, well, you're trying to steal my identity. Like, especially back then, like, you know, society was a lot more formal – You know, we didn't have computers in class and things like that. Like, if anybody got an IM that purported to be from a dean, like, nobody would have ever believed that. You know (laughs) what I mean? It would be like getting a text from the President of the United States today. Like, you just don't, you wouldn't do that. So it was clearly trumped up political nonsense because he didn't like what I was doing. Um, There was another part of that, Matt, that is uh, somewhat relevant to our work together at Commonwealth Foundation. Uh, In the middle of all that, too, we invited Pat Toomey to campus. It was 2004. Pat Toomey was a congressman. He was running against Arlen Specter. And uh, in that same election cycle, Ralph Nader was running for president. Well, the university booked Ralph Nader as the commencement speaker. The university had a policy at that same time, which had been enforced against the conservatives club that banned political candidates from appearing on campus. So we asked, why are you letting Ralph Nader give the commencement address? They said, well, 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 he's not appearing as a presidential candidate. He's a, you know, an expert on whatever <laughs> he's an expert on, uh, and he's going to talk about civic engagement, which obviously could never lend itself to talking about politics, right? right? Uh, and we said, okay, well, that's great. Um, what are you paying him to talk about civic engagement? They said $13,000. We said, Fantastic. So I called uh, a friend of ours in the local community who uh, unfortunately passed away recently and deserves a, a shout-out on your program, At uh, Yvonne Morgan, mm-hmm. who was a dear friend of Pat Toomey's uh, at that time and to this day, um, prominent activist and just all-around great lady. She's like my ado- adopted mother up there. And, uh, and I said, hey, Yvonne, I got an idea. Let's invite Pat Toomey to campus to talk about civic engagement. <laughs> and we'll pay him zero. (laughs) How does that sound? She's like, I'll call him. And she called him, and he said yes. And just as you might have predicted, the university said, well, whoa, he he can't come to campus. And, of course, it was hypocritical. Uh, So we did really, I think, two very wise things for being a bunch of college students. Uh, One, we brought him to the bar 50 feet across the the property line from campus.
0: So not actually on campus. Bingo. Uh
1: And— we put up posters about, come here, the speaker of the university he doesn't want you to hear. And I'm pretty sure, I know we had free pizza. I'm pretty sure we had beer since it was a bar. So it was much better than it would have been on campus. Uh, and and he, you know, he agreed to come anyway. And by the way. Are uh, you
0: already on trial at this point? The trial was over. A, oh, that was this, over, but, but was this was all, is you continuing to be yeah. a rabble rouser. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
1: and, and this, this, the way that we prevailed in the trial and the way that we prevailed with Toomey was the same, which is we took the story off the campus to like-minded alumni. So, for example, the Toomey thing ran in the Wall Street Journal uh, in a, you know, political newsletter that they had at that time, uh, thanks to Chris Lillick, friend of the Commonwealth Foundation, right? The whole pitch there was you couldn't win if you were just having the discussion in the campus bubble. You had to involve the people who, frankly, were making the university possible. And if they stepped in, and if they pulled their money specifically, life would change for us little punk students, and it did.
0: So you were put on trial, but obviously you survived, uh, or how did that end up concluding, and what was your relationship, I guess, going forward to be able to ultimately get a degree from Bucknell?
1: Yeah, I was acquitted six to one. Um, You know, again, like, you know, in a normal world, that would be a hung jury, and you'd have to get tried again, but this is done by majority vote, right? So I won. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is I I, I think it's pretty clear what the people who did that, what their objective was. They were trying to send a message Mm -hmm. to me and to these other students that you don't do that. Well, it kind of didn't work uh, because that really galvanized us as a group that, for example, galvanized us to do the Toomey thing that we just talked about. Uh, But it also connected me and some of my colleagues to organizations like Commonwealth Foundation and many others that, that helped us. Uh, which, by the way, ended up being, for many of us, uh, our life's work. Many of the people that I went through those battles with back then are still advocating for the ideas that, that we held uh, so, so dear back then. They're still doing it now. And by the way, they're doing it a whole heck of a lot more powerfully because, one, we've learned a lot. You know, we're a little older and a little more mature, uh, but we've been able to get connected to some great organizations like the Commonwealth Foundation that allow us to advocate for, for these values that we, that we hold so dear. So what the opposite of what those, what those folks who tried to intimidate us wanted to happen is what actually happened.
0: Well, so while you are at Bucknell, uh, we connect, and, of course, I try to hire you. I ultimately do that uh, three times, and this will be our ongoing debate of how many job offers you uh, got from me. But uh, you said no to me, and you decided uh, – um, actually, you worked uh, down in Philadelphia – uh, for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which I think was uh, also a very important organization that came alongside you at, at Bucknell. Yeah,
1: it, it was, and that's part of why it was so easy to say no to you, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, right? I mean, yeah, we did develop a relationship way back then, and you quickly uh, earned my enduring respect, uh, as did the foundation eventually. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can imagine from everything I went through on campus, I felt pretty strongly about... Making sure that nobody was ever mistreated again, or if they were, they, they you know they won, uh, the way that I was, and uh, so that that was what I you know initially uh, dedicated my career to first in Philadelphia, and yes, that organization Fire is a, a wonderful organization. They really played a key role in, in saving my bacon, uh, so to speak, and then eventually, yes, also did some similar work in in Washington well, D.C.
0: And I think it's important. I mean, Fire is a non-part. I yes. mean, uh, y- you have. I think uh, Greg, who's the president, yep. uh, identifies himself as a progressive liberal. Absolutely, uh, yeah.
1: They so have people of all sorts yeah. of sensibilities, but what, what galvanizes them is what we began talking about a few minutes ago, is the First Amendment and the values of the uh, the First Amendment. And I, and I think especially in today's culture, that's a, that's a really important thing.
0: Well, I know uh, I lost you to Washington, D.C. for a time. You went to the American Council of trustees and alumni and uh, worked in higher ed reform, uh, but ultimately uh, uh, did lure you back uh, to Pennsylvania, your home state. You recognized the real impact that you could have on this country by laboring uh, in one state and joined us uh, in 2010 um, and came on as my COO and and vice president. Um, Well, I guess we, we should have gone back to one of the more important things that happened at Bucknell is that you met your wife.
1: Yeah, well, you're right. Uh, so there, there, there was uh, a wonderful girl I, I met at Bucknell. Uh, her name's Carissa, and uh, she was the copy editor of that controversial newspaper. Eventually, uh, had to do a little bit of recruiting there, but uh, successfully recruited her as the copy editor, and uh, eventually recruited her as Mrs. Mitchell. And that was a fantastic move. You know, we've we've done a lot of hiring together, Matt. But I would say those that's the, the best recruiting you know job I ever did. Uh, and I'm very thankful for her. Um, so yeah, Carissa and I, we went to DC and we always thought that we would not be there very long cause that's kind of what you do. Um, but it's very interesting. We got to a point in around 2010 where all of a sudden we were like, wow, maybe we're going to spend the rest of our lives here cause you know, my work was very fulfilling, you know, defending other college students and professors who were mistreated the way I was and, you know, making change in that regard. Um, I'd also started to do some work educating state legislators about those kinds of issues, including some conversations with you and some, some people in, uh, in Harrisburg. Uh, but, um, yeah, in 2010, we, we did get the third uh, round of outreach. Uh, and it's interesting, I was just, uh, for something that we're probably going to discuss in a couple of minutes, I was actually looking at some of those emails uh, this past week because I needed to find my résumé uh and no I'm not getting a new job but I was just looking around I realized I haven't done a resume since 2006 because when you tried to recruit me in 2008 I said no and in 2010 I found the email where I said I was interested but you never even asked me for my resume so <laughs> I, I haven't had to redo my resume since 2006.
0: I knew your criminal record at yeah, that time. Yeah so well
1: it sort of went spoke for itself but the short of it is you know look I mean as you know uh, You know, I—I'm Presbyterian, so I generally have three reasons for everything. And, uh, you know, one reason why we were interested in Pennsylvania was uh, we were starting to have a family, and we did think that Pennsylvania, and specifically central Pennsylvania, notwithstanding my roots elsewhere, uh, would be a great place to raise a family. So that that was appealing to us. Secondly, um, you know, look, there's lots of great places to raise a family, right? I mean, we could raise—we could have a great time raising a family in D.C., uh, we could, you know, if we were going to go elsewhere in the country, we could have gone to Nashville. is a great place to raise a family. Right, there's lots of great places mm-hmm. to raise a family. I think it'd be pretty sweet to raise a family in Montana, you know. Um, but here's the thing, and this was the second reason: making change of the kind of of the kind that the Commonwealth Foundation does or an organization like it does, simply doesn't matter as much in Montana or in Tennessee or in virtually any other state as it does in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is one of the largest states. It's the largest swing state. Uh, It's cultural and historical and political importance are just so huge. I mean, how many times have we seen that in history? We saw it in 1789. We saw it in 2016 and lots of times in the middle, right? Uh, So we did find it to be a particularly compelling opportunity, uh, not just to have a place to raise a family, but to have a, a such an opportunity to affect what kind of country that family was going to be living in. You know, that's, that's the way I look at the work that we do. And look, the third reason was, and I'm, you know, I don't mind saying this on the air, right? Uh, you know, you said it jokingly, Matt, but certainly a key part of why we wanted to come back was actually to work with you. I mean, that's the way it is. Uh, and uh, and that, that all those things have proven to be a great decision.
0: Well, I appreciate that, and uh, I know it was one of the best decisions uh, that I've made is uh, and I think it's one of the things that one of the few things that I'm really good at is hiring good people because um hiring you was where we went from adding to really multiplying in so many ways in, in the influence of Commonwealth Foundation. And so that was an easy thing when we talked about my leaving in 2016 to start Commonwealth Partners, and you're um, uh, becoming the new CEO and president of Commonwealth Foundation there in in July. And I know that it's been a great decision all around, and you've been recognized, of course, uh, uh, across the country as one of the leaders of the state think tanks, and Commonwealth Foundation is recognized as uh, one of the premier uh, in the entire country and is constantly sought after for advice and counsel on, on how to do things. And that's happened at uh, large part because of your leadership and, and the team that you have uh, under you that's just full of talent and people that are committed to the cause. Um, but let, I want to get back to something that's exciting that, that you and Carissa are working on and really uh, putting into practice uh, the things that you've been preaching Uh, for a long time, particularly as it relates to education. And I think that that's where our passions have long been in education, uh, recognizing it as being the foundation and the building block for everything else. If you get that wrong, boy, you're going to have a lot of problems. Uh, We see that in our our welfare system, our correction system. Um, You and Carissa uh, homeschool right now, but uh, you are embarking on a new journey of saying, let's start a new school. Um, Talk about that, because I think that that's an important aspect of civil society and how we say, look, we see a need uh, and something that our community could benefit from. And you guys are really taking this bull by the horns and running with it. Yeah. You know, it's
1: interesting um, because as we talked about, I kind of got into this whole line of work accidentally. And I could have got out of it. You know, I, all my classmates at Bucknell, you know, went to Wall Street and, like, you know, did normal stuff, right? Or I could have been a railroader or whatever. So I get like, why do I stay in this? Really, I mean, you know, it's not an accident anymore, right? The the, key, the biggest reason why I get up out of bed in the morning I, I is the same reason I believe you get out of bed in the morning, Matt, which is I believe there are many, many, many children across Pennsylvania who are denied opportunity because they don't have – the ability to go to a great school uh, where they're going to flourish uh, instead many children especially I, I do care deeply about Philadelphia I care about our whole state but I you know I grew up driving through West Philadelphia I didn't live there but you know where I where my parents are from you know it's right on the other side of the line right so uh, I I see what happened I grew up seeing what's been happening in those communities and I care deeply about it uh, so that's, you know, that's part of why the work at the Commonwealth Foundation does appeal to me so much. And, yeah, it is something of a natural extension of that to now say, you know what, in addition to working on behalf of policy change that's going to help those families, we're going to put our own two hands to work, or our four hands, I guess, Carissa's and mine, um, to create a new option for families in, uh, in our area. And that's what we've, that's what we've decided to do. Um, through uh, allying ourselves with a successful model that's being done in about 100 places across the world called Acton Academy. Uh, And we got to know it a few years ago actually through Commonwealth Foundation uh, and the national sort of association or confederation that we're part of, State Policy Network. Uh, I just stumbled into a speech given by this guy Jeff Sandefur is his name. He's an entrepreneur in Texas, and as, as you probably know, Matt, he's uh, a board member of the analogous organization in Texas to CF, uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And I thought he was going to talk about, like, that stuff, you mm-hmm. know? But he gave this amazing speech on this school that they set up, and they call it a 21st century, one-room schoolhouse. Very innovative, very high results, very low cost, which, you know, as you know, you know, is something that, We think about in the educational market, you know, we've, you and I have have set up more than one business in our day, right? And you got to look at your cost structure, and you got to look at what the market will bear, Uh, and it's a very intriguing, very innovative, very disruptive model.
0: And so, uh, Acton uh, Academy uh, is, as as you noted, a 21st century uh, one-room schoolhouse. And uh, I think you said something that's important, because we have, we've got different uh, uh, models right now. You have the free public school system, right, that uh, quote-unquote free, of course. And then you have, uh, in, in the middle range, you might have more like Catholic schools, but those are really struggling because of parishes not supporting them the way that they have and the costs are, are certainly uh, rising because of just increased costs of education. And then, of course, you've got the private academies uh, that are out there, and I know in your own community you've got Harrisburg Academy. I think, sure. what, that's 15000 a year, so really outside the reach of yeah. the uh, middle-income uh, and even upper-middle-income families. Um, what is it, how, where does this model fit within kind of that range from free you know, public school or charter school and the private school academy that's out of reach of, of most uh, working Pennsylvanians.
1: Yeah, you know, that, that's really what we f- find compelling about this in many ways. And we don't know exactly what the price tag is going to be. We're, we're in the very early stages of this, but we're moving forward quickly. Um, but the idea is to create an option that is accessible to middle-income people with a price tag something like $4,000 a year, with also some kind of cap for large families, right? Because, I mean, here's the way I think about it, right? Uh, you know, in in where the area where I live, sort of a mid-range school could cost you, you know, especially for high school, close to $10,000 a year, right? So, and I have four kids, right? So four times 10, you guys, you know, math, Matt and I are history majors, so we can do <laughs> that math, right? So that's 40. And in order to be able to write a check for 40 with taxes and everything. You really got to make 80, right? Well, there's a lot of really blessed successful people around who 80 is what they make. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like you can't feasibly do that. You got to buy groceries, you got to have a mortgage, you know, like what I mean, what if the kid needs a backpack, you know? Um, and those are just some rough numbers, but the idea that I think would be really great and which we want to make happen is to drive that number way down by still having great results which We've seen this Acton Academy do across the country with this one-room schoolhouse model. Uh, they use a lot of technology, and the students, much more so than in traditional education, direct their learning, uh, which means you don't need uh, as many staff as you would have in, a, in another situation. And uh, that obviously you know, impacts the, the structure of the business, the cost structure, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of questions yet to be answered, but anybody who, you know, hears this and wants to learn more about it, you can just Google Acton Academy or go to actonacademy.org. It's all across the country. There's a school starting up in Pittsburgh, uh, and there's two starting up in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, we're we're intending to pioneer it in central Pennsylvania this fall.
0: Well, we know that uh, we love uh, the disruption of entrepreneurs, and in education it couldn't be uh, more needed. Uh, given uh, the, the, you know, the status quo is uh, not acceptable for a lot of kids, unfortunately, and we need those options. So uh, I'm thankful that you and Carissa have stepped out and are willing to do this, and we, uh, we look forward to seeing what kind of disruption you cause and the opportunities that are created for families that otherwise wouldn't have access to them. So that will be uh, interesting. So, Charles, uh, going forward, um, Commonwealth Foundation, uh, your leadership there. Um, what what are you most proud of uh, about the organization that you lead, and uh, where do you see it uh, influencing things going forward, particularly under a uh, governor who is uh, not one to readily embrace a lot of the policy ideas uh, coming out of your shop?
1: Well, you know, what I feel the most excited about is that I – believe there is good evidence. Look, I don't. I believe in evidence, right? I don't believe in, like, well, how do you feel about it, right? Like, give me evidence. I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that despite a challenging political climate in many different respects, the future of Pennsylvania is bright, and that, you know, look, here's the reality, right? Uh, whatever the next chapter in America's history is, Pennsylvania is going to play a large role in writing it. You know, you look at our role in the Electoral College, you look at our population, you look at the fact that you know, I mean, it's not like a joke. Like we are at Keystone State, you know. You got to drive through us, you know. Like there's just so many aspects to the importance importance of Pennsylvania that even the worst public policy can't shake. You know what I mean? They can't move <laughs> us. You know what I mean? Uh, so it it, it matters uh, one way or the other. We're gonna write. We're gonna, we're gonna do a lot to write the next chapter, and I think there's lots of evidence to suggest it's going to be a good chapter. Um, you know, and and why is that? Well, lots of reasons, but. You know, when you look at, uh, for example, the fact that over the last couple of years, you know, I, I've, been, I've been paying attention to Pennsylvania for a long time. I can't remember other than the last couple of years of time when the Wall Street Journal, journal wrote an editorial and said, hey, New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, New York, California, you guys ought to stand up and pay attention to Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania is getting good stuff done. Uh, obviously, as you well know, Matt, having been in this a long time, we've got a lot of work left to do. Um, But whether you want to look at pension reform, uh, whether you want to look at bringing transparency to public sector unions, uh, uh, collective bargaining, an issue that you wrote about in the Wall Street Journal years ago that Governor Tom Wolf signed, uh, whether you look at ending uh, last in, first out, uh, the crazy way that we used to hire and fire teachers in Pennsylvania, which was spearheaded by a guy who's now a vice president of Commonwealth Foundation, uh, Steve Bloom, you're seeing stuff. You're not just seeing bad stuff not happen in Pennsylvania, like, sorry to bring up a sore subject, but a $4.6 billion tax increase, which mm-hmm. our governor pitched when he came into office, right? He got zero. Uh, you're not just seeing bad stuff not happen. You're seeing good stuff happen. And the other thing that I think is critical is you're not just seeing it on the policy front. You know, a couple other examples, right? Uh, I know you've had on, on the program before uh, David Osborne from the Fairness Center, right? When I get up in the morning and I ask myself the question, you know, how do I feel about Pennsylvania? I think about a guy like Cisco Molina. Cisco Molina is one of the clients of that organization. And a guy like Cisco Molina, who tried to bring, this is kind of like what happened to me at Bucknell, he tried to bring transparency and good government to his union. He got fired for it. guy who wanted to dedicate his life to helping other children who were abused, as he was as a child, got run out of town on a rail for exercising his First Amendment rights. Well, how gratifying is it, and how excited does it make me about the future of Pennsylvania that because of some really excellent leaders and nonprofit organizations like the Fairness Center, like Americans for Fair Treatment, who are, uh, Keith Williams, who you've also had on, Cisco Molina got free legal help to vindicate his yeah. rights. And a couple months afterwards, uh, a, n- a number of, uh, Pens- of our fellow Pennsylvanians filed a class action lawsuit to enforce. The Janus case, the huge United States Supreme Court case that came out last year, right? Like, that's, that's not policy. That's a whole different playing field where Pennsylvania is setting a national example for how you do things right, for how uh, public sector workers can have their freedom, can have their First Amendment rights respected, even in terrible situations like what the union tried to do to Cisco Molina. That's what I'm excited about.
0: Well, Charles, I really appreciate your joining me on Brews and Views. Uh, but I most appreciate your friendship, uh, your partnership, and uh, your passion to rescue kids from crummy schools to uh, making Pennsylvania the foremost state in our nation. Uh, because you know, as I know, that if we save Pennsylvania, we can save this nation and preserve uh, what is the freest, most prosperous, most generous country uh, in the history of mankind. So. I'm glad to partner with you in that and fight side by side against those bad ideas that want to take us in the wrong direction. And uh, for that, I thank you for your coming back to PA um, and your work at Commonwealth Foundation.
1: Well, thank you. I'm glad we did. And um, I'd also like to end by saying that if any of the bad guys are listening to this, which if they're smart, they are, just be put on notice. We're not going anywhere. We're going to keep doing it. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners' Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.